Our reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Um, thank you for the reality that you are uh, faithful to your promises. And uh, thank you, God, that we uh, don't just um, know that from, um, from some unsure hope or uh, wish, but God, that we can look back throughout history and see that you have been faithful uh, to your covenant people to fulfill your promises to them. And God, we can stand on that same, um, inside that same faith, knowing that you are a good and loving God, that you are sovereign, uh, that you are a faithful promise keeper. And the work that you've begun in each of us, God, you will bring to completion. Uh, no, matter, um, um, no matter the trials of this life, um, no matter the uh, broken promises of people on this earth, God, that you are faithful and that you will see us uh, all the way home. And we praise you and we worship you for that. I pray, God, that you would uh, help me, uh, a beggar in need of your grace, God, to uh, just to uh, proclaim the simple message um, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would be encouraged and we would be in awe um, that the zeal of the Lord, the God most high, um, that you accomplished what you set out to do, and there was nothing that was going to stop you. We love you. We thank you that you love us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Good morning. So we are uh, heading into uh, Isaiah. Uh, I missed Stephen's introduction. I trusted he uh, kind of told you where we're headed in uh, these next four weeks of Advent. Uh, today is the first Sunday of, of Advent. And um, in ad- the Advent season has been um, observed um, since uh, uh, Pentecost, since Jesus' resurrection. And it has uh, two purposes. Um, one is that it, that it encourages you and I as believers to rejoice in Jesus' first coming, to rejoice in what he accomplished by uh, being born a babe in that manger. And second, to strengthen us while we await uh, the second coming of Emmanuel so that we could be with him forever um, in, uh, in his place, in, in, in heaven. The Latin word adventus, at advent, was the translation of the Greek word parousia. It's a word used for both the coming of Christ in human flesh and his second coming. So Advent and Christmas are not merely about the coming of Jesus, but it's about everything since his birth. And my prayer is that as we um, await to see him face to face, it will be strengthened by his promises, the promises that have already been fulfilled to his people and the promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Because our hope, our joy, our comfort, our strength um, is only in um, his promises of who he says he is and what he promises to accomplish. This particular week, it's, uh, it's been great. I've had um, my son Joey in town. Um, but in the same, same time, I'm, I've been weary. I've been weary of the, um, just the battle in this world, um, the battle that I see uh, of oppression and injustice and unrighteousness, um, Maybe weary more of the uh, battle that rages inside myself um, that actually at times is encouraging because the battle is actually um, proof that I'm the Lord's, but the battle with my sin, uh, the battle with my flesh, um, that it rears up um, often and that I can say with Paul um, often, um, why can't I do the things that I want to do? And why do I do the very things that I don't want to do? It's a place that we all, um, I think, if we're honest, we live in, where we get weary. We get weary of the fighting and the arguing and the division. We get weary of the people that are walking in darkness that seems like there's no hope for them to come to Christ. And we should be the weariest of all of our um, own sin, of our flesh. Um, and, but knowing all along that, um, that His Spirit um, is greater than our flesh. And even though I walk and you walk in light of Christ's forgiveness, if you know Jesus Christ, and you trust in His promises to carry you all the way to the end and finish the salvation, the work that He began in you, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of the sinfulness in this world, in the midst of our own sin, we can find continued hope in God's faithfulness to His promises. We can look backwards, and we're going to do that the next four weeks. We're going to look backwards and see God's faithfulness to all of His promises. He was faithful to unfaithful people, and He will be faithful to you and I even in our unfaithfulness. 
So my prayer for you this Advent season is that you'd be keenly um, aware and reminded of God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise of bringing forth a Messiah to save you and I. That you be reminded that the Lord created you so that he can love you. If you're a movie watcher or you enjoy great stories, particularly classic stories, uh, the best stories, the best books, the best movies chronicle a journey towards redemption in the face of hopelessness. Think about the movies and the books that you've seen. They chronicle a journey toward redemption, toward reconciliation in the face of hopelessness. Just when you think the main characters have made substantial progress toward their goal, whether that be a relational goal or a physical journey through danger towards safety, there's always a moment in a great story, in a great movie, when some awful setback happens. Something so dramatic that it makes the reader think that the situation is utterly hopeless. But then the climax turns everything around. That makes a great story. The last surprise, the, the last surprise that everything turns out great is what J.R. Tolkien called the U-catastrophe, E-U catastrophe. It's the opposite of catastrophe that started this story's drama. This is the moment when everything reverses. The U-catastrophe uh, paves the way for the story's resolution. And once you know how the story works, you see this narrative um, arc um, everywhere. You see it in comedies. You see it in superhero movies. You even see it in romantic flicks. For some reason, uh, one of the few TV shows that I watch with my wife are movies uh, just because I want to be a loving husband, I like the Hallmark movies. They're so predictable. They got the same people, they got the same storyline. Uh, the guy and the girl are almost together, right? They're almost together. And then, bam, um, the, the, the Hallmark movie mom ruins it all. It's usually the case. And she's usually being pursued by, or she's pursuing a, some guy that has a kid. Stories work this way. Stories work this way because the true story of our world works this way. The story of the redemption of God's people works this way. And what we're going to see today, what we're going to look at the next four weeks as we observe this Advent season, is that when the night of life for God's people was at its darkest, when it couldn't get any darker, and the dawn seemed like it would never come. God was at work in that darkness. He was at work before dawn had arrived. He was working when it seemed like dawn would never arrive. You see, God was at work fulfilling his promise to save his people for himself that would be with him for eternity. The zeal of the Lord accomplish that, and the zeal of the Lord will bring lasting joy and peace and comfort to you and I, no matter how, what level of weariness that you are experiencing right now.
There may be weeping for the night, but joy will come in the morning. May not be tomorrow morning, but you can bank on God's faithfulness to his promises. That even in the midst of trials and weariness, that joy will come in the morning. All throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, God uses king and kingdom language to describe his relationship with his people, with you and I. I once heard God's kingdom described as God's people in God's place under God's rule. Just, it's a great definition of God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. You and I were created to live in God's kingdom. In Genesis 1.28, we learn that humanity was entrusted with the royal task of subduing and having dominion over all of creation. If you give me a little bit of leeway on this, our first king and the first queen, if you will, they failed in this calling. And after they failed, after our first king failed in this calling, God promised that a true and better king would come to conquer all evil and restore humanity's rule over the earth. To Abraham and Sarah, God promised, kings shall come from you. This promise was eventually narrowed to the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, we see this. This is Nathan speaking to David. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, you die. I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. From the time God promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, who would, come, who would bless all the nations, they continued to walk in darkness. And when God had given them to the Ten Commandments through Moses, all they ever did was break the Ten Commandments. It's been a hard road for centuries, well, for a couple thousand years, probably 5,000 years, actually, for God's people. And God has always been at work to preserve a remnant of people who really know what it means to be saved by grace. And this Advent season is all about grace. It's not about doing better. It's about God's grace who saves us um, even when we are unlovable and unfaithful. God's covenant with the throne of David from the passage that we just read in 2 Samuel 7, it still stands. Despite David's failures, despite God's, uh, the Israelites' failures, despite our failures, his covenant still stands. In addition to their, uh, God's children's uh, spiritually impoverished condition, 
Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, the two kingdoms in Jerusalem, or Judah that the Jerusalem was the capital of, that's who Isaiah is prophesying to. Um, they, were, um, they were losing hope. They were walking in darkness. They were, um, uh, they were walking in sin. And God was bringing judgment on them. So in addition to their spiritually impoverished condition, um, their neighbors to the north were rising in strength and were preparing an attack on them. And this is where we find ourselves in Isaiah. It's been, a, it's been God's people that have been walking in darkness and walking in disobedience for centuries. Now Isaiah says uh, to them um, that um, you're going to be, um, the, the Assyrians from the north are going to come down and they're going to pound you and they're going to take you into exile. Joy to the world. Yes, joy to the world. And we're going to see it in a massive way here today. I'm going to back up to Isaiah 8, 16 through 22. And I want you to have the, the, the backdrop that um, the Israelites, um, God's chosen people um, living in the southern kingdom, um, were um, spiritually uh, depraved. And Isaiah said this in verse 16, chapter 8, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among the disciples. Isaiah is saying, stand on God's word, stand on God's promises. And Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. You see, they, were, they did not see God. They did not experience God. And now Isaiah tells them that there's an enemy from the north that's going to come take them out and take them into exile. And Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Verse 18, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, when, the, when God's people say, inquire of the mediums and of the uh, neochromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. He says, stand on God's word and his promises. Don't look for all the answers in wrong places. Don't call back the dead, he's saying, to find out. Um, these movies, I'll just say it right now. You can judge me if you want. Like These, these movies about um, uh, people coming back from the dead and then giving testimony, Like, why does that bring you any encouragement? I don't understand that. Why don't we get encouragement um, from God's faithfulness to his promises rather than believing a four-year-old kid? I'm not saying it didn't happen, but that should not increase our hope, quite frankly. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They're walking in darkness, and because um, they speak according to this word, not God's word, but the word of the world, they will have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and they'll turn their face upward. This is a picture of, of God's people, God's genuine people, in the midst of trials, in the midst of weariness. And they, they believe they deserve something better. So they, they, they look to everything the world has to offer to, um, to cure their weariness, to give them hope. 
They pass through the, line, the land, they're greatly distressed and they're hungry, and when they're hungry, they will be enraged, and they speak contemptuously against their king and their God. God, why did you allow this in my life? Where are you? And they will look to the earth. They look to human politicians. They look to um, um, uh, uh, new marriages, new relationships. They're looking for everything under the sun. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. They look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And what he's saying here is they're not going to go to hell. What he's saying here is that as long as they look um, to the things of the earth for ultimate hope and comfort and peace, they're going to walk in the gloom of their anguish. You see, the reality of this world that we live in is that there's anguish. There's trials. There's weariness. There's brokenness. But we don't have to live in the gloom of the anguish. We can, we can look above that and live above that because of, and I am really in trouble here because I'm down to 10% of my battery. Um, so we're going to adjust here just for a second. Sorry about that. Is there anybody other than me that's um, linear? I'm going to mess you up because I'm standing off to the, to the right. This would bug me. And if it bugs a few of you, it's, it's only for your sanctification. Do this. I think this will work. Yeah. Sorry about that. So from the time that God had promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation and that they would be blessed so that it could be a blessing to all the nations, they continued to walk in darkness. And when God had given them the Ten Commandments through Moses, all they ever did was break them. So when all human attempts to remedy the gloom of anguish fail, God intervenes. God doesn't leave us in our anguish. He doesn't leave us in the gloom of our anguish. He intervenes, and he's faithful even when we're unfaithful. So in verses 1 through 7, we're going to cover this at a very high level today. After the darkness, the light of grace will dawn. This is the eucatastrophe that J.R. Tolkien talks about. That in every story, every story there's conflict and there's hopelessness. But in every great story, like the story of God's word, hopelessness turns into hope. Verses 1 and 2. The gloom of anguish at the end of chapter 8 transitions to the triumph section of this passage. But there will be no gloom for who who is in anguish. There'll be no gloom. But, but or nevertheless, there will be no gloom for, who, who is in, for, for her who was in anguish. The remnant of God's people have experienced the darkness of sin and trials. As God would not spare them of this anguish, the constant pounding and trials and suffering and judgment, but in their anguish, Isaiah reminds them of their hope. The anguish, as I've already said, is, uh, of this dark life is, um, is guaranteed. Um, gloom comes forth from anguish. And gloom comes forth out of anguish when it is void of hope or we have misplaced hope. 
So if you are, um, if you are in the midst of a trial, long-term trial, and you are in anguish, a couple things. One is that God sees you. Um, God cares. And what he wants you to look at is where are you placing your hope? Because anguish is a reality. But we don't have to live in gloom when we're in anguish because of the hope that has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 1b, in the former time he brought into contempt. This is so mind-boggling to me. In the former time he brought into contempt. He, being God, brought into contempt, brought judgment on the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And I, I had to dig deep into commentaries to understand what this is. I mean, it's not, you don't just read and go, oh yeah, Naphtali, Zebulun. Some of you, you know, it'd be good names for your kids. It wouldn't be good names for your kids, actually, when you find out what it means. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali was referred to as the Galilee of the nations or the Galilee of the Gentiles. And the reason being is it was a melting pot of ethnicity. It was a northern border of Judah, of the southern kingdom, and it was a melting pot. It's where all nations would come. It's also the front door where the enemy would come through and pound um, Judah or, the, or the, uh, the, the southern kingdom. So what he's saying here is in the former time, he brought contempt. In other words, he brought um, Syria and Israel and Samaria uh, down um, through the northern border of Judah. But then it says in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. So it was through this land that the Assyrians would attack, but it's also the same land that was made glorious through Jesus' public ministry. It's the very place where Jesus started his public ministry. And that just blows me away. It brings, uh, it brings um, beauty out of ashes. Um, even though that there is um, pain and weeping at night, there is joy in the morning. That God uses hard places and hard times to bring forth salvation and to bring forth his glory. Listen to this in Matthew 4, uh, 12 through 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It gives me goosebumps that, that Israel was living in hopeless despair. God's people were in hopeless despair, and the Lord was allowing the enemy to come through the front door of the northern edge of Judah, and it would be the same gateway that Jesus would bring forth his public ministry. The kingdom has arrived. Weeping is for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God is continually working good from bad. In Isaiah 6, 11 through 13, Isaiah is hearing from the Lord that there's going to be trouble coming. That the remaining remnant, which is about a tenth of the, of the original um, group of people, the, the, they're going to get pounded. 
that they'll be under judgment. And Isaiah cries out in chapter 6, verse 11, How long, O Lord? He believes in God's promises, but he says, How long before you rescue us? And here's the angel of the Lord's response. I wouldn't like it. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And there's this picture of a battlefield that everything is burned out. There's nothing left but a smoldering stump. And the last word of this chapter 6 is this. The holy seed is its stump that when everything is hopeless, when everything is burnt out, when you can't even look up and see God's promises, you got to know that the holy seed is its stump. Israel will be chomped down like a tree, but this smoldering stump is a seed that will grow. And this seed here in chapter 6 of Isaiah uh, was a seed that when all seemed hopeless to God's people, there was a seed living in a dead stump that would bring forth new life and salvation to all who would believe. This is a picture of new life rising out of a place of death. And if you go forward to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we see this seed actually starts to sprout out of a dead stump. It says this, it says a future ruler, chapter 11, verse 1, a future ruler who would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you know who Jesse is? The people in Israel knew who Jesse was. It's David's father. That this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom, that God is a promise keeper. Just because David blew it and the future kings blew it, that God would never allow his promises to fail. That even out of a dead stump there was a seed. And out of that seed it sprouted. And it continued to bring forth the king, the promised king. There was tragedy. There was triumph through tragedy. This is grace. This is grace in that simple picture of a shoot coming out of a stump that gives me hope to press in through dark times. It doesn't, it's not motivational to make me do something this week. It reorients my thinking so that I see myself as part of a bigger story that God is writing. A story of his glory and my good. Remember, great stories always include moments that seem hopelessly dark. And I pray that in the darkness that we would see the storyteller. The storyteller who has already written redemption, who has already written victory. So take heart today. The story of Jesus will be true of us, whether in life or death. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. When the remnant is wondering if they'll even survive, Isaiah prophesies unexpected victory. 
You won't only survive, but you will have victory. Not their victory, but a victory through the one faithful Israelite, King Jesus. A victory that will expand the kingdom. You have multiplied the nation. You, God, have multiplied the nation. He is spreading His light to more and more people, multiplying a remnant long ago into a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, from all peoples, from all languages. And He's saying here that joy and gladness will overwhelm all of our failures and all of our anguish. There may be weeping for the night, but joy will come in the morning. And their joy here in verse 3, it's not a meager joy. He compares it with a joy of workers at the harvest. And I picture the workers at the harvest, the greatest harvest ever, getting a, um, getting a bonus at the end of it. That there's joy as within the harvest. And the gladness of soldiers dividing the spoil. After the, the enemy's been conquered, they're, they're going through and they're taking all the valuable. They're, they're on the field like the World Series champions jumping on each other because God has brought forth a victory. He's increased their joy. And then verses 4 through 7, Isaiah explains this miraculous joy is breaking upon the world. That we have a liberating king who is fighting for us. For the yoke of his burdens, verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And I'm not sure what all that is. But I know what Midian is, the day of Midian. You see in the book of Judges in chapter 6 and 7, you've heard the story of Gideon. Well, Gideon was being, uh, uh, the, the, God's people were being oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. And God was telling Gideon that he will get a victory over the Midianites. And Midian had an army of 32,000 people. Gideon had an army of 32,000 people. That still wasn't enough to, uh, to apparently conquer the Midianites. And God said, I want you to reduce it down to 22,000. And then God said, I want you to reduce your army down to 10,000. And then he told Gideon that you're going to see victory, and I'm going to reduce your army down to 300. 300. And he had a greater sense of humor. He had a more audacious plan that they didn't even uh, pull out a sword or a spear, that these 300 Israelites, um, led by the um, shivering and quaking um, Gideon, um, blew horns and lit torches that somehow put the Midianites into some type of a frenzy where they started slaughtering themselves. And so the mighty Midianites were conquered. There was a victory. What Isaiah is looking ahead to the reason that he is saying that for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He is pointing to a greater Savior, a greater liberating King, who will also come in an unexpected way to conquer our mortal enemies, the only enemies that can bring us eternal harm. 
And he will bring us another yoke. But it will be an easy yoke that brings freedom, not bondage. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The weariness of Israel's burdens, the weariness of our burdens have been swallowed up by King Jesus. Verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is a, what is a boot of a tramping warrior and what is a garment? It's, it's the pieces of, armies, of the army's clothing that won't be needed anymore. There won't be any more war. When he returns a second time, there'll be no more war. There'll be no more oppressive enemies. All will be gone. Our liberating king will not only defeat all the forces of evil, he will put a final end to conflict itself. I'm weary of conflict. I'm weary of my own sin. I'm weary of the brokenness and the injustice and the oppression and the unrighteousness in this world. One day, one day there'll be no more war with my sin in the sin of the world. No, one day there'll be no more warring with Satan. That Even though he's on a leash, he's a liar and a deceiver. One day, there'll be no more death. It's all being burnt up. And this passive voice that it will, will be burned whispers that this victory is not our accomplishment. It's not our victory. We step onto the battlefield after the victory is won, and all we do is celebrate. Praise be to God. His yoke is easy. In verses 6 through 7, we see God's means for this transformation, this, uh, this reason for celebration. How is it going to happen? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's through a baby. You see, we can slide into this Christmas season. I love Christmas. I love Thanksgiving. I love this time of year. But we need to, we need to slide into this season um, remembering that it's, he's just not a, a cute baby in a manger that was born to a virgin. That this is the God of eternity who by his zeal would not be stopped. That he is a promise keeper for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And this child is not just born to captive and defeated Israel, but to all the nations. Unto us, unto you, unto me, a child is given. He's the king that we knew we always needed. He's the king that came forth through the smoldering stump he is the king who is Emmanuel today, God with us and forever with us. He will bring forth a new dawn. In fact, he already brought forth a new dawn. He brought forth salvation that increases our joy. He conquered the enemies of sin and death in the most unexpected way. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. It says in Isaiah twenty two twenty two, and I will place on his shoulder the king of the house of the key of the house of david 
He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. This is a picture that, that, that everything rests on his shoulders. There's nothing that comes into your life or my life or the life of America or anywhere in this world that doesn't go through his hands. That it's all on his shoulder. Kings historically stood in a place, uh, in God's place, to lead and protect and rule his people. But these kings were all imperfect. Many of them were tyrants building their own kingdoms. All kings but King Jesus were imperfect and failed and were overthrown. This king will meet our every need. He is sovereign over everything. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the next three Sundays, we're going to actually break down those four descriptors. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about Wonderful Counselor and, um, and Mighty God. The next Sunday after that, we'll break apart Everlasting Father. What does that mean to you today? And then finally, Prince of Peace. And I'm going to close here with uh, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, unlike past kingdoms, there'll be no end to this kingdom. There's nothing that can dethrone him. Not your sin, not injustice in this world, not oppression, not unrighteousness. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. Of the increase of his government, it'll continue to increase. And of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Not only did he establish his kingdom, but he will uphold his kingdom. And he'll do it with justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. We'll have a chance to unpack that more in the coming weeks. But I want to end with the final sentence in verse 7. I don't know why I haven't really noticed that verse in the past, this section. Everything I just said, everything we know about God's faithfulness to his covenant people, everything we know about creating us before eternity passed to be loved by him, everything that we know that he loved us when we were yet sinners, everything we know that he brought us in as friends when we were yet enemies. It says here that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this that he was unstoppable, that there was nothing that could stand in his way from saving his people. And this very word zeal says something about God. It describes his passion for our salvation. This Hebrew word means to become intensely red. That nothing was going to stop him. No Assyrians, no Babylonians, no sin of other people in your life. Not your own sin. Nothing is going to stop him. It gives us this idea of color flooding through a person's face that with, with the flush, deep emotion within. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, for the love that burns in the hearts of the, of the groom for his bride. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Isaiah 42.13 compares God with a warrior 
psyching himself up before going into battle. It says that he stirs up his zeal for you. That, that he stirred up his zeal. That there was such a zeal and a passion to bring you and I into his kingdom. That there's nothing that could thwart that plan. As we close off, I want to remind you of just two things. Number one, God's timing is on a far larger scale than ours. Isaiah is writing this in the middle of the 7th century. That these hopeless Israelites who are being warned that they're going to be taken out and taken into exile by the Assyrians, they had to wait seven centuries, another 700 years before this child comes. And the shoot that Isaiah talked about that was coming out of the burnt out stump, the whittling down of God's faithful people to a remnant, when it all looked like all of God's promises were lost, we see Jesus who came forth by the zeal of God through a burnt out stump, through a seed of failed kings after failed kings. And number two, number one is wait. Number two is that the full consummation of all these blessings has not fully arrived. Last time I looked, we still live in a world that is unjust, full of oppression. It's got trials. Yet we need to trust in the same way that Isaiah trusted. God is in control, and he's coming back, folks. He's coming back. So I just I pray that the reminder of God's faithfulness to His promises wasn't just for um, His um, Old Testament people. It's for you and I today. And it's to strengthen us so that we can move forward in joy and peace and hope in loving others. Let's pray. Father, thank You for um, this section of Scripture. God, I'm grateful that... Um, that we live on uh, this side of the seed uh, sprouting, if I may, that we live on this side where we get to see um, your promises fulfilled um, through the rearview mirror. And Lord, yet we, um, we have trials. Um, there's oppression, there's injustice, there's unrighteousness. Yet, Lord, we have the luxury of looking back and knowing that, um, that even when um, your people of the Old Testament were um, brought into exile, um, Lord, it was temporary. Um, that even though there was um, weeping um, at night, um, joy came in the morning. And I thank you that joy came in the person of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you um, emptied yourself. I thank you that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that you became a servant. You came to serve us. You became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I thank you, God, that, uh, that you had a resolute zeal before the beginning of time knowing 
that we would walk in darkness. That in spite of that, you shone your light on us. And I thank you, God, that we are part of um, your forever kingdom. And I thank you for your kingdom that has come. And I thank you that you brought us into your kingdom. And God, we look forward to the consummated kingdom one day when you return to judge the living and the dead and to bring us, your kingdom citizens, your children, um, fully into your kingdom. We won't have to worry about our sin, the sinfulness of this world. There'll be no suffering, and there'll be no more death. So God, in the meantime, we just uh, desire to um, enjoy the good blessings you've given us here now and to live in um, joyful submission to you and to honor and glorify you in everything we do. We love you. We thank you that you love us first. And it's in God's, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.